What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Why I Suck at Dating podcast. My name is Alice. Thank you so much for joining me. It, uh, it's been a minute. It's technically been over a month, actually, <laughs> since I've released an episode. So I've, uh, I'm, I'm grateful to be back. I'm excited to be back. I, I'm going to get, I'm going to get real with you. I'm going to get vulnerable with you and, uh, just kind of give you a rundown on what's been going on in my life the past month and a half. So I just, I have not had the mental energy to be able to put an episode in out that is, um, just because I, I I found myself drowning in the residue of of all the shit that's happened in the last four months, and um, I found that I was I you know I was I I mean when I say I was drowning I was drowning, and um, now that I'm on the other side of it, it 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 seems a lot more clear as to why I was struggling so much. So basically, if if you don't know me well, this is what happened. Um, in February, I had to come back to Canada unexpectedly. I had been living in Ecuador, um, and it's something that 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 was kind of the the first thing that happened that really got the got the snowball rolling down the hill. <laughs> um, so basically, you know, I had built worked my ass off to live down south. That has been a dream of mine that I made happen last year. I sold my van and I moved to El Salvador and it was amazing. And then after El Salvador, I moved to Ecuador and I had an apartment rented. I lived right by a dope surf break. I made amazing connections. It just, when I'm living down there, it like I live well. And one of the things that's really important to me is, um, what I call my formula and they're my, they're my natural remedies, um, for how I navigate through my depression and my PTSD and whatever other mental blocks that I have, because I know what it's like to be very, very low. Um, I've had depression since I was very young and, um, I've, I've been in a dangerous place where, when I was in my young twenties, um, it got as, it went as far as I, um, this is a lot to admit and it's taken me a long time to get to a place where I can say this without being scared, but I, it got so bad that I, I attempted to commit suicide. So I know I've now after, no, it's been over 10 years now since that day and I know the things that I need to do to make sure that I don't get to that place. And those are, that's, that's essentially the formula. So I figured out that I need to connect with nature at least once a day and be able to move my body in some way. So, you know, in Ecuador, that's surfing or that's being able to exercise, do yoga. Um, and then, you know, surfing equals nature, being in the ocean. Um, I also know that I need to educate myself at least once a day, whether that's listening to a podcast, um, that's based around psychology or neuroscience or something like that, or reading a book, um, that really, really fills me up. And then on top of that, you know, eating as healthy as possible. Um, and then the obvious, like, you know, drinking water and getting enough sleep. So those are things that I know I need. And when I don't get them, that's when shit can go downhill and so essentially when I fully, my knee just fully gave up on me. Um, and people ask me what happened. Well, in originally in September of last year, uh, the first tear happened when I was skateboarding and I tried to drop into a bowl for the first time by myself and my back foot fell off my board and boom, I like felt the tear. It was disgusting. Um, but I was still fine. I, it, it wasn't bad enough that I felt like I needed to go home yet. But then three months later, I was twerking at a wedding to WAP. <laughs> I should say attempting to twerk. I don't even think I can twerk, but whatever. Either way, that took the tear to the next level. I still managed to walk around after um, and 
after the wedding, I moved to Ecuador and I just found I was kind of limping a lot, but the, the swelling went down and then, um, it just took one more like innocent little step. All I did was like step into a picnic bench and boom, I could not fucking walk. So next thing I knew I was on a flight back to Canada because I literally had no other choice. Um, <clears throat> and I mean, I've said this already on my Instagram and whoever knows me knows this, but I literally, the night that that happened, um, I had said, I don't plan on being, I literally said, I don't plan on being back in Canada for a long time. And the next thing I knew I was on a flight back. So yeah. And I ended up coming back to the city that a, I, it's not like I hate it, but it's just, I, 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 I built my life in Ecuador. I I built my life to be down South and to be traveling. So to be back in a city where the last time I was here was when I was in a very dark place. And before I started doing all the work, this is the city that I, I, I did what I did. So, um, and if you've listened to my first podcast, I do talk a lot about those unhealthy coping mechanisms, you know, the drugs, the alcohol, the sex. And so, because I was so vulnerable coming back here and I was in so much fucking pain. Like, I'm not kidding. I was in so much pain, nine out of 10 pain almost every day. I, I was, I, I just found myself slowly creeping back into those unhealthy coping mechanisms. I started drinking again, but not that alcohol is the bad thing, but when me not being, I couldn't, I didn't have exercise anymore. I didn't have the connection to nature because I couldn't get anywhere because I could barely walk. Um, That's when the drinking became a depressant for me. And then I got pregnant and it added to the emotional and physical weight of shit that was already going down that even if I was super strong, I just, I couldn't carry it. And I was trying to be so, I just didn't want to let getting an abortion affect me. I think I just wasn't letting myself process it. So I, I, I didn't let myself process it until it became so heavy that it just, it was, it was, you know, I mean, I'm sure everyone knows when you ignore any of those feelings, you know what happens. So yeah, that, that just became more of the, I I ended up just going deeper and darker into a hole. And, um, next thing I knew I was kind of living in a way that I was when I was younger, not necessarily like, you know, I was drinking every day when I was younger. I wasn't even drinking that often, but my mental health was definitely deteriorating and I was getting to a place where I just could not function. Um, and it, it just wasn't like, luckily I have amazing supportive friends. Um, and I love my job. So that really helped me get through it. And then I also see my therapist once a week, but I realized that I, alcohol just wasn't helping me. It was actually just causing me to become more and more vulnerable to my demons. (laughs) Um, and then, yeah, so I made the decision to, take another break. I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know how long this break's going to go. My last one was 10 months. Um, but I do know that since I've taken a break, I feel so much more capable and I'm able to really be present here because for four months, every day I was just, I was itching to get the fuck out of here. I just, I, I was like planning every single, I was like waiting for the set, looking at flights. I just like, I tried, I I wanted so bad to just not be here anymore. And I was so resistant of being in the city, um, that I wasn't living mindfully. I wasn't being present. And since I quit drinking again, um, I find (laughs) it's like night and day. I, I'm starting to see so many more opportunities and reasons why I, I, I came back. I'm not saying like, oh, everything happens for a reason. I don't know 
how like I don't I mean that's a whole other topic I don't want to go into but my main point is that since I quit drinking I've been able to be more present and been able to see all of the beauty and the amazing work the amazing healing work that can be done here and it's been dope so I'm I'm super fucking stoked and honestly again I wouldn't be able to do it if it wasn't for my my beautiful beautiful friends and my amazing therapist you're you're the best if you're listening um so now I'm just excited to see you know where it takes me and this time around being single or being single I I am single (laughs) being sober is different because last time I had my partner that I was dating at the time it was the pandemic we were living in Yuki so I could do everything and anything I wanted. We had the van and we had, we could surf, we had a boat, so we could, it was just so fun. So this time it's a lot more of a challenge because, you know, I, I don't know that many sober people. Um, and the ones I do, we're all very busy. So our schedules don't always align. Um, and I can't just hop, skip and jump to water or woods because I don't have the vehicle and my knee is not even that great enough yet to go do all the things I like doing activity wise. So Um, it's, it's a really cool challenge for me to just sit in the discomfort, sit in the loneliness and, um, really figure out who the fuck I am and what the fuck I want. Um, not to say that I feel like I have to reinvent myself, but more so just, just be, just be me. Um, so thank you for listening and hearing my story. It's, you know, it is scary to be vulnerable, but again, like I said, I've said before, the reason why I share these things is, is in hopes that, you know, if you're going through the same thing and you're feeling alone, you're not alone. Um, and you know, if you need to connect and, and, and you, and you want to reach out, I'm, I'm more than happy. I I would love to hold space for you. So please reach out if you need, um, and if you need help, you know, connecting, if you find the, uh, the task of looking for a therapist to be overwhelming, dude, I'd be more than happy to help you find one too. I, I just know that these are the things that have, are really have saved my life. Um, so yeah, anything I can do to support. Um, and yeah, so that the reason why I'm doing this is new episode alert. All right. So I got the pleasure of having the amazing Jessica D. Marcus back on the podcast, therapist and life coach. We chat about my, probably my favorite topic uh, when it comes to human connection. And that is attachment theory. Attachment theory has honestly saved. No, what am I saying? Not saved. Attachment theory has changed the fucking game for me when it comes to all of my relationships. Not just, not just, you know, romantic, but I mean, platonic, familial. Um, I recently had to, um, fully say kind of goodbye, um, to my mother, um, because our relationship just wasn't healthy for each other anymore. And I won't dive into that too much right now. Um, but thanks to the knowledge of attachment theory, there's not, I don't have resentment. Um, and as painful as it is, um, I'm able to understand why. And I, I honestly, it's helped me make the move that I need to make to be able to, to put the boundaries up. Um, because I totally understand. Um, when you understand your attachment style and other people's attachment styles, it can extend as far as, you know, why you react to the cashier at the store, um, and how maybe you can respond better. Um, so it's just that blueprint that, um, really helps you just navigate through life with more compassion and, um, and in turn, you're less likely, we're less likely, I'm less likely to be, traumatizing others, um, through my behaviors. It it just, you know, it's, it's all about gaining that emotional maturity. So I'm excited for you guys to listen to this. Um, you all, so yeah, uh, let's hop in. Um, 
And if you need anything or want to reach out, you know where to find me. I'll link the, the IG handles below. So let's do it. Let's hop in. Thanks so much. Love y'all. Welcome back, Jess. For anyone who uh, didn't listen to uh, episode number two with Jessica D. Marcus, um, she is the, um, she's just amazing. Everybody loved your episode. I'm just so excited to have you back. Um, a little rundown. Uh, so Jess is a, a therapist with a master's in social work and a life coach who's just been spreading her light for the last 10 years. Um, and yeah, I'm so excited for this. I, I'm obsessed with attachment theory. So this has been an episode I've been wanting to do since I thought of doing this podcast. Well, I mean, one, thank you for having me back. I loved our conversation and I think, you know, anyone with a trauma history who's dating and navigating relationships, you know, should obviously like tune in. Um, but yeah, I mean, Attachment theory is something that, whether you're aware of it or not, we all have um, an attachment style. And so, and we all as humans are interacting with other people in relationships, whether that be personally or professionally, intimately, socially, et cetera. So this is something that is super relevant for every single human being. Totally. I love that you made a point to just say more than just relationally, because yeah, I feel like after I learned about attachment theory, it wasn't just navigating with human connection, but it was navigating through finances, navigating through my own challenges. Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm just super excited. And I'd love to maybe even just start with the basics um, because I do know a lot of people who just have not dipped their toes in. Um, even just the term is, has been something that they've never thought of or heard of before. So should we just get like, go right to the basics, start with Bowlby. <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah. In the 1950s. <laughs> I love it. I already know. Um, yeah. So in the, in the 1950s, um, there was um, some research being done around attachment theory. And a lot of the research was done with infants and with their primary caregivers. And um, out of the theory was born four different attachment styles which just basically is how we relate to important people in our life um, and how we interact in relationships. And therefore, um, after the 50s, there's been a lot of research that has shown how not only is that relevant to how we attach to our primary caregiver, but what that looks like in adult relationships, because it doesn't just end there. And so um, it's a really beautiful theory. And, and yes, it is a theory, but there's so much research at this point um, mm -hmm. to kind of back it up. Um, and there's also a lot of resources on how to kind of build that awareness and, and skill set to navigate what your unique attachment style is. Yeah, we're in a really good place right now, I find, um, especially because there's been so much research and then um, attachment theory is just blowing up too. So it's, yeah, it's really exciting. I agree. It is exciting. And it's, um, it's exciting in the sense too, that there's some research coming out and some literature coming out around being able to change and heal your attachment style. You know, a, a few decades ago, it was this theory that kind of fixated around this is your attachment style and this is how you just live with it for the rest of your life. And now there's some literature coming out that literally teaches you how to shift your attachment style and that it's actually possible to um, become securely attached if you're not. Oh my God, that makes me so excited. I'm like, I mean, I could definitely say I'm living proof of it because I've seen myself become secure over the years with certain partners. So yeah, it's, it's, it's really cool to know that, you know, we're not just stuck in a certain way. Um, but should we, should we talk about the different kinds? I mean, maybe end on secure, but like, where do we, where do you want to start with this? Yeah, hundred percent. So let's talk about the four attachment styles and, and what in theory again, creates them. Let's start okay. with avoidant. Sweet. So avoidant attachment is when an individual feels like 
when a partner bids for affection or tries to create closeness or intimacy, that it is impeding on their independence. And so they may pull away. That's an avoidant attachment style. And how that's created is when your caretaker is rigid or unavailable or not attuned to your needs. You learn hyper-independence. Okay. That's avoidant. Now I'm speaking in generalizations, by the way, just for the sake of, you know, um, teaching in this moment. Then you have anxious attachment, which is when people are hyper-focused on the relationship and connection to their partner to the point where they're preoccupied and they are constantly trying to attach and be close and intimate. And sometimes depending on, cause this is a, a spectrum, just cause you're anxiously attached doesn't mean you're all the way on one end of the spectrum, right? You can have features without it being like impacting your functionality and relationships. Uh, it's sometimes enmeshed with their partner. Um, and what that how that attachment style is created is through inconsistency in the primary caregiver's ability to be present during needs, emotionally, physically, mentally, et cetera, during childhood. Then you have mixed attachment style, which is a little bit of both. Um, and that's usually created um, through trauma. Um, so, so that's something that we can talk about too. And then you have securely attached, which is what it sounds like someone who is okay with being independent. They don't view it as a threat to the relationship or connection. Right. Um, but they're also okay with closeness and intimacy and commitment and connection. Like they're flexible and, and secure in who they are and in relating to others. Um, so those are the four and how that's created is by having a parent who is consistent, who is, um, supportive, who is attuned to the child's needs. Um, and is considered mentally and physically reliable during those formative years. Um, so those are the four different types of attachment styles and, and, and generalizations, how they're formulated and what they might look like in terms of relating in, a, in adulthood. Mm -hmm. And that makes so much sense. And I think a lot of people can relate to one of them or if not some of them. Um, so it's kind of nice to be able to just understand them in that general in that general way. I find one that is the most fascinating to me is the avoidant um, for a number of reasons. Um, one, because I can, I can go from being anxious and avoidant just because I had four different parents who treated me very differently. Um, and then that has translated to my adult relationships where I've had secure relationships, but then I tend to date avoidance because two of the four of my parents were nurtured a more anxious attachment style. So I do wonder, I mean, what things can, so, you know, as an avoidant, if what are things that they can recognize in their childhood that their parents or their caregivers or anyone in their lives at that time could have done to kind of nurture that attachment style? So if you find yourself leaning more towards an avoidant attachment style, what probably happened is that there were some inconsistencies in your caregiver's ability to be there for you. That could be on one end of the spectrum, neglect, or it could be on one end of the spectrum, just a lack of attunement, right? right. Um, so that could manifest, maybe your parent was in and out of in being incarcerated or struggled with addiction, or maybe you jumped around from foster home to foster home, or maybe your parent just had their own depression and anxiety or worked a really stressful job and traveled a lot, or was in the military and was deployed a lot, or, you know, worked three jobs because she was a single mom and just wasn't really had the energy to engage with you at the end of the day, right? Without judgment or labeling, you know, this parent effed up because they did this to me. It's like, well, it can manifest from a variety of different circumstances, right? But but at the core, it's just an it's that the parents just weren't available. Either they were cold, rigid, not attuned, not empathic, or just not available. Right. And so essentially if that parent would have been secure to nurture the secure attachment style, um, say they weren't available one way, like correct me if I'm wrong, could the parent have been like, hey, right now, you know, I'm not feeling very available, but like, how about, you know, if we can just 
watch a movie tonight because mommy's not feeling very energetic and then tomorrow we can do something more active would that be a way that a parent could avoid not nurturing an avoidant attachment style yeah as long as there is follow-through and consistency if the parent says that and doesn't follow through you're probably going to create an anxious or avoidant attachment style if the parent communicates that and follows through that's secure that's certainty that's that's security right that where it's i trust that you're going to be there i am able to depend on you because you follow through i know that you're going to do what you say and that you're going to be there when i need you and if not you're going to communicate that and and support me in a different way um it doesn't mean that we have to be perfect parents or our child is going to be messed up um we just have to be consistent and present more times than not Totally. You know what? And I, I, I can totally relate to that right now. Um, with, with, uh, someone really close in my life, she's just an amazing mother and has this really beautiful way of being able to be vulnerable and honest with her children about her needs. Um, so, you know, if she's frustrated, she just, you know, articulates to her children, like instead of, you know, raising her voice or, or, and, and, and having, you know, freaking out essentially, um, you know, she's able to be like, uh, she names her feelings, but then she explains why. And then she follows through, which I find I can see with her, with her kids that it creates this secure base, you could say, and this understanding that like, oh, I can depend on you, um, to feel safe. Cause I find with my parents, they not only did not provide me with any insight as to why they were acting the way they did, but I never felt safe. And so I created my own safety and found my own ways to function and survive. And I, I mean, is, I guess that's what essentially what attachment, like why I have my attachment styles, right? It's like 100%. This is how I that's learned the, to survive. That's at the core of it, right? An attachment style, because when you're young, you have to learn to relate to your caregiver in a way that's safe or it's very primitive, but our biology said you're going to die. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, that doesn't end, <laughs> right? Because we are interdependent species. Like we thrive in relationship and, and biologically, if we are isolated and alone, even if we're really not, that thought process and that feeling is, is a threat to the, to the body and, and, and is equated to death. Right. So, you know, you're speaking to something that is really important. Like, and I think it's helpful to create compassion and patience with yourself and with your partner where there isn't one attachment style that's better than the other. The, the, yes, we would all like to work our way towards being securely attached, but being anxiously attached or mixed or avoidant isn't a bad thing. It's just our way of creating safety in relationship. Mm-hmm. Right. So for some people who are anxiously attached, that safety is by leaning in. And for some people who are avoidantly attached, that safety is from creating distance. Mm -hmm. Right. And then again, when there's a trauma history, it could be confusing. (laughs) Right. Um, So, yeah, at the core of it, it's it's all about safety. I mean, it makes so much sense because, I mean, I think if you think about it, too, when we're born, we are just like completely helpless, right? So like the only people we have to depend on are our caregivers. So by default, I mean, for anyone to challenge attachment theory, they could maybe come up with something else, but essentially we're, we're by default dependent on whoever is our caregivers because that's how we survive. And then, right? Yes. Um, yeah. And you know what I find really fascinating about avoidance as well is that um, is is kind of what's happening what I've noticed, you know, the, I've seen a lot of dating coaches saying this one thing where they're like, if they're not putting in effort, they're not interested. And so it's not worth your time, which is incredibly great advice because in the end, wherever you put your energy is, you know, it, it, everybody's time and energy should be respected and valued. But I had this thought recently because I had um, been involved with someone who was very avoided. And I just, I couldn't help but not want to discount how they felt about me. 
And because I had learned a lot about their childhood and how it was kind of the classic, you know, the parents weren't available because there were many kids involved. Um, And so this person learned to kind of more depend on themselves and in turn completely disconnected themselves from their own emotions because they basically learned I shouldn't have emotions because I don't need them because I'm better off on my own and then learned to um, cope by, you know, working and succeeding, yada, yada, yada. But essentially my theory here where my thought was that when we, when things kind of didn't end well, I didn't want to go out and be like, this person was completely not interested in me. You know, they never were interested in me and like, be like, you, you wasted my time. Like that just, that didn't go through my mind. My mind went through, okay, someone who was nurtured as an avoidant, who not only was nurtured as an avoidant, but never or hadn't yet explored why that was, wouldn't necessarily even know, even if they were really into me or had attraction or feelings for me, as soon as they felt that threat or that over, like that physiological flooding of feelings that were um, triggering for them, that would, I think, wouldn't, wouldn't that completely take over all the feelings that they had for me or for anyone? And then how could they even know, right? Yeah. So in that moment, people get triggered and flooded and they will, and it happens subconsciously. Attachment styles are subconscious at this point. Um, And that's why this conversation is so important because step one to changing your relationships is by bringing awareness and creating discrepancy and therefore motivation to change the behavior. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so (laughs) first things first, Um, When someone gets triggered, they do become emotionally flooded and subconsciously this takes over, right? And so they'll engage in conditioned behaviors. So a lot of the theory around attachment, we'll call these protest behaviors. And they're just learns that ways that we've learned to relate, right? So for example, for the person who is avoidantly attached, when someone is bidding for affection or trying to create intimacy or showing vulnerability or you know, protesting with intense emotion, that person gets activated and their protest behavior might be withdrawing. It might be becoming too busy and unavailable, right? And again, it's not that they're a bad person. It's that they're fearful and they don't feel safe and they're engaging in ways that they've learned to be safe in relationship. Um, and, And with the anxious person, the same, the same thing happens when they're, is a perceived threat to that relationship, their behavior, they get activated a lot of times before they're even cognitively aware of it. All of a sudden they're feeling anxious and they're blowing up their phone. They're, they're calling them nonstop and they're being super vulnerable and, and just sharing without regard. And sometimes if they're not getting the attention they need, they'll engage in really outlandish behaviors like crying and screaming and saying, you don't care about me and making empty threats. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's their way of trying to feel safe and reestablish the connection. So, you know, that little bit on protest behaviors and it being subconscious again, without judgment, just understand what's happening. Um, but yeah, a lot of that stuff in the moment is really hard to manage because it is subconscious and you are flooded and you're just trying to create safety. Now, what I will say about this is that, You're right. I think it's important to kind of decipher, is this healthy or unhealthy? Mm -hmm. If you are anxious, it's probably a good idea to not be in relationship with someone who is avoidant. However, you could have a really healthy, happy relationship together if there is awareness and there is conversation and commitment to work on it together. Because like we talked about you can actually, as an adult, create a corrective experience and both become securely attached in relationship if there's awareness and communication. And so in the beginning of the relationship, can you pay attention to those subtle signs? Can you identify what their attachment style is? Can you clearly articulate your needs? Can you handle conflict with grace and skill? Can you you know, respect their need for space and regulate yourself without needing them to do it for you, right? So there are things that you can do to 
be in relationship with those individuals. Um, but I think it's important to, again, build the awareness for yourself and then build the awareness with your partner. Where are they on that spectrum? Is this something that is just how they attach and it's something that we need to work on together? Or is this something that they're not aware of and they are not willing to work on and it is going to impact our relationship and it's going to activate me 24 seven. And this is just going to be an unhealthy dynamic and we should just cut early on. Totally. And that kind of stuff can also, I mean, I've even seen people who grew up secure and then dated someone and then became anxious or became avoided. But to speak to what, I mean, everything, the topic that we're on now is, um, I think that's the beauty of this work is that, okay, so yeah, that particular person hadn't necessarily um, immersed themselves in, in the idea of attachment theory, but thankfully I had. So I was able to just understand completely and I was able to, I, I didn't react. I, 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 well, I wasn't reactive to it. I just, all I did was just, I was so compassionate. I mean, in my mind, I just felt awful because like not, you know, not, I mean, maybe awful is not the right word, but I just, I just kept thinking I could, you know, I kept thinking of this person as like a child and how, how overwhelmed they must feel. And so I was able to just, you know, mindfully and maturely tell them, I think it's really important for us to take time and pour energy into ourselves. And there was, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't at all try and express how I felt. It was more so just like creating this really beautiful space for us to move into a place where we could work on ourselves. Um, and it was a proud moment for me because, you know, I can remember myself at 24 and <laughs> being anxiously attached to this particular partner. And he was like, I think I might get a gym membership. And my first thought, I, this is a perfect example of like physiological flooding of emotions before I can even handle like autonomic nervous system just went upwards and I was just fight or flight anyways so yeah homeboy's like i'm gonna go i'm gonna i might get a gym membership and i literally i just i went into panic attack immediately i don't even think i said anything and then he was just like what's going on like i literally decided i'm gonna go to the gym and the, in my mind i just kept thinking about he's gonna go to the gym he's a babe he's gonna meet another babe that's it it's done the relationship's over but i couldn't articulate that so i just cried and had a panic attack and then eventually I might have gotten it out, but like, like I said, this is before I did any work. So I was a mess and the poor guy was just so confused, but probably a good opportunity for us to talk about anxious attachment. <laughs> that is a textbook example. I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, so yes, here's the thing about um, anxious attachment. It is actually a really beautiful at its core skill to have, because what it is, is it's being hypersensitive and attuned to other people. But like any strength, when you take it too far, it could be like a double-edged sword and become a weakness. And so what ends up happening is individuals who are anxiously attached because they're so preoccupied with that relationship and connection, they are super attuned to their partner. So any perception of threat or disconnect immediately will activate them. Mm -hmm. And their nervous system will take over and engage in those protest behaviors to try to reconnect, even though that partner, him offering or deciding to do a gym membership was actually coming from a place of self-care, not a place of creating distance. Yeah. But your brain goes, oh my God, less time, less space. What did I do wrong? What, what are you thinking or feeling? How do, I, how do I reestablish connection? And again, because attachment style is so subconscious at this point, especially in adult relationships, they don't understand what's happening until there's a blowout. And then you're fighting about something when really what's happening under the surface is that you got your attachment style got activated. And so that's a really simple but beautiful example of what happens, right? Um, so again, with anxious attachment, like how can we just kind of create some buffers or boundaries in place of this attunement and utilize it when appropriate, but learn to co-regulate um, and or like have healthy coping skills when we do get activated, especially when our partner, that's a perceived threat. It's not a real threat. It's not that they said, oh, I'm going on a date or I'm yeah. going to download Hinge. It's I'm going to get a gym membership because, you know, I want to feel stronger or lose a couple pounds or start running again. Mm -hmm. it has nothing to do with you, but 
anxiously attached individuals, well, that's kind of where their mind goes. Another thing that's interesting too about that dynamic is a lot of times on paper, it doesn't make sense, but psychologically it makes perfect sense. Anxious and avoidance will gravitate towards each other in relationship. Yes, and so <laughs> again, it doesn't make sense on paper. Why would you do that? Right. But what ends up happening is because it is familiar, even though it's uncomfortable and not wanted, you will subconsciously repeat the type of relationships you had in your life. Because again, it's familiar. It doesn't have to be comfortable. It doesn't mean you want it. You could even actively be trying to avoid it. But people who are avoidantly attached find themselves with individuals who are anxiously attached because it's going to activate that avoidance and give them space and permission to engage in their behaviors and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Someone who is anxious might find themselves in a relationship with someone who's avoidant because, not because they don't like, not because they like it, but because it's familiar, because it's going to activate that attachment style. It's going to activate those thoughts and activate those behaviors and just kind of recreate the dynamic that they had when they were younger in relationship. And so it's interesting to just kind of like also call that out so that you're navigating with awareness as to is this attachment, is my attachment being activated or is this love and connection? And really kind of trying to decipher between the two. But yeah, going back to your example, that's hilarious because that's exactly what happens. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like I, when I look back, I mean, at the, you know, there's, I mean, there's less shame and embarrassment and more so kind of. I mean, I just feel proud of myself to see that I, I, I'm so far away from that behavior. I mean, again, the way I handled things recently um, with that previous person um, was just like, I was just so calm and, and yeah. And because I'm primarily anxious and then I can be secure depending on the partner and then can also be avoidant. One thing I find is that in, in my anxious relationships, which have taken up more of my time than my other ones is that for a long time, I had a very misconstrued idea of being in love. And because I totally nerded out over the years, I learned that um, in regards to just your hormones and chemicals happening uh, that happen when you're in love is that my being, when I thought I was in love, I was actually just in fight or flight. Um, and so I equated that feeling to love because that's the feeling I got consistently as a child. And for anyone who's still wondering, you know, how do I know if I'm anxious and again, some examples from my childhood would, you know, my, I, I, my abandonment, um, emotional abuse, um, neglect, and I'm saying all these things, you know, as a fact, I'm not resentful. My parents did what they did and they and they only know what they know um so i totally understand that in the end it's my turn to do the work to heal myself um but those are just some examples and yeah so because you know love as a child for me was consistent survival mode consistent um heightened sympathetic nervous system when i started getting into relationships as an adult when that nervous system was heightened i just thought this is love, but love shouldn't be that, right? Like, what should love feel like? <laughs> Safe. Um, feeling supported. Um, a healthy sense of inter interdependence, like we were talking about before, where it's like, it's not a problem to depend on your partner or to utilize biology and, and the fact that we co-regulate with people and things that we love, our nervous systems, our, our heart rates, our... Um, our breathing patterns, our nervous systems, right? We can co-regulate together. That's the beauty of, of a partnership. Um, but a lot of times healthy love and, and, and speaking in generalizations at times can feel boring because it's safe and healthy and consistent and reliable and dependable. And there's open communication and there's space and there's interdependence. They do their thing. I do my right. And then we come back together. Um, again, this is in general, everyone's experience of love is going to be different based on your unique biology, history, psychology, environment, and theirs. And then you have two people coming together. I mean, everyone's going to experience this differently. But in, but in general, you know, a lot of times people will confuse love with intensity. 
Um, and it doesn't mean that you don't love them or that there isn't love in that relationship, but constantly seeking relationships that are activating you at that level and putting you into that state of being where you're in fight or flight, your amygdala is activated, you're releasing cortisol and you're engaging in solace sex and you're just kind of rinse and repeat over and over again. Again, not saying that that's not love, but on a spectrum of healthy versus toxic, I, I wouldn't put it towards the healthy side. Mm -hmm. Totally. I mean, it's, it, and the thing about it is it's so easy to fall. I mean, for myself, it was so easy for me to, to just continue. It, it, honestly, it wasn't until I started learning and becoming aware. And I guess actually it wasn't until my first secure relationship that I truly understood the feeling of that kind of safe, secure, peaceful, calm love. Um, but I mean, this could be a good way to kind of bring in disorganized, you know, I think it was really hard when I first started the work to really understand how I navigate through adult relationships because sometimes I would be in with an avoidant and sometimes I'd be with a secure and I was kind of that classic. I mean, some, you know, some people would say to me like, oh, you know, it's like, you know, when someone likes you, you don't like them, but then when you, they don't like you, you like them back. And it wasn't, I, I, I just don't think it was as it wasn't as simple as that for me. I think certain people intrigued me and I was attracted to them for very particular reasons. And then they just so happened to be, I mean, you know what, I'm saying this and I'm now confusing myself. Like, what do you think about that? For someone who's disorganized, how, how does that happen? What happened in my childhood? I mean, I can say, but what happened? Like, how can someone tell, um, especially yeah. if they're confused because they keep dating different kinds of partners? So we'll do two parts. Let's do childhood and then dating as an adult. So childhood, how a mixed attachment style could be curated is a couple different things. It could be, um, again, that person's unique psychology. Um, it could be... Um, influenced by um, the caretaker's marital satisfaction, um, their own mental health, um, right? So maybe you had a secure attachment and then mom was diagnosed with bipolar and had her first manic episode, but got medicated and was fine, right? But that, because it was such an emotionally charged six weeks of your life or six months or six years, like it could have kind of shifted your attachment style. Um, maybe you were anxiously attached and then we're in a really beautiful, securely attached relationship and that healed you, right? So, so in childhood, how you create mixed attachment styles is um, circumstances shifting. Um, maybe you have parents, like you said, that cultivate different attachment styles and relationships um, where mom is one way, dad is one way, or grandparents, et cetera. Um, your unique psychology and biology, um, healing corrective experiences and or traumatizing experiences that shift things for you. Um, so it, there's not one answer in terms of if this happened, you're going to be mixed. It's mm -hmm. there is a variety of reasons that might contribute to the fact that your attachment style is mixed. Um, now in adult relationships, how that kind of manifests is when you're attracted to someone um, they could be any of the attachment styles. There's a one in four chance that they're securely attached, right? So mm -hmm. what ends up happening as you date and create intimacy and connect, you're going, their attachment style is going to come to the surface with time and yours is either going to, through corrective experiences, heal and adjust, or it's going to be activated and be reinforced. And depending on who you're dating may influence what is activated if you're mixed. So if you're dating an avoidant, you might find yourself being activated to be more anxious. If you're dating someone who's anxious, your avoidant attachment style might be activated. If you're dating someone who's secure, you might start to kind of notice some regulation happening and some healing. Not saying that you have to be super intentional for it to happen. It can happen naturally, but if you are aware of it and are engaging in communication and, and, and being intentional about working through it, then, then, you might find yourself being maybe securely attached in, in that particular dynamic. Um, so I think it's kind of like it takes two to tango 
mm-hmm. and and with mixed attachment styles, depending on who you're in partnership with at the time, is probably the symptomology you're going to see. Right, right. And so, was I wrong to say disorganized? Is that something completely different? People it call same? it different. They call it mixed, disorganized. They actually will call it anxious attack, anxious avoidant. Like. Okay, cool. Yeah. I just wanted Mm -hmm. to make sure. So then in regards to attraction versus, I mean, maybe this isn't even a thing I could ask, but like attraction versus um, whether you're actually attracted to them or, um, you know, how sometimes you, like an anxious, for example, can be attracted to an avoidant and not even notice and think that they're attracted to the person, but they're actually just attracted to the chaos of what ensues with an avoidant partner, I mean, are two separate um, or are there just other factors that can be involved? I mean, I mean, I'm sure there are obviously like compatibility, the chemistry, how you met, the timing. Um, But I wonder, is, is there a possible way of a difference or do they just kind of all harmonize together and you just... (laughs) <laughs> Ooh, these questions, Alice. So good. Yeah. Um, I would say all of the above, like it's, um, attraction is such a simplistic and complex thing at the same time. Right. So, um, physicality, um, circumstances, chemistry, compatibility, um, you know, all these things will definitely, um, influence attraction. Um, but one way that I like to check in to make sure, am I attracted to this person or am I being activated is getting into my body, right? So I will create some space between me and the partner because when you're in physical, um, connection with a person, like in their space, you're going to co-regulate that's going to happen. And when you co-regulate through mirror neurons, you're going to feel attached. That's just what's, it's happening between you and I right now, right? Like that's, and, and we're not even in space together, but it, it's it's happening, right? It's, it's our biology. Um, so I would create space between me and that person. And I will do some breath work, some mindfulness, just to kind of get present. And I'll bring that person to mind and our relationship. And I'll tune into my body. Like, how do I feel? you know, do I feel a sense of space and ease and openness and comfort and safety and connection and warm, loving kindness and respect towards that person? Or do I feel tightness, um, swirling sensations, pressure? Does my heart rate increase? Does my face get hot? Does my mind feel clouded? Um, Do I feel this anxiety or pressure to connect? Do I feel a sense of rumination and worry and preoccupation with them? Um, which might in the moment feel good and feel intense and feel fiery and passion. But again, on that spectrum, is that healthy long-term? Is that sustainable? And is that really what I'm looking for in partnership? Now, for some people that might be, that's fine. For me, not so much. (laughs) Of course. I mean, all of those are such amazing check-ins. I love that. Especially the one where it was like, do I feel um, this kind of yearning to connect that feels almost, and I feel like there's two different versions of that. There's obviously like, you know, you're, it starts with lust and then moves to love, but you're attracted and you're turned on. That's the yearning to connect. But in a way that you feel like the, I mean, the way that I feel like I could relate to it is like, I had someone where I was like, I felt a yearning to connect, but I knew that I was trying to find every which way because I just knew that it wasn't going to happen. Does that make sense? Like yeah. trying to like break into a house that's not mine. Wait, obviously I'm not breaking into my own house. So like, yeah, breaking into someone mm-hmm. else's house. Um, so yeah. And I, I mean, like, what are some questions, I mean, that someone could check in? So there's the body check-in. What are some questions that someone... Um, could do in that moment too, or they can be like, as I, I find that, you know, especially if the person just takes all of those kind of boxes, um, it's easy to get lost in those boxes. Right. And especially if they, um, you know, if you're already, um, physically intimate, then you have all of those chemicals, those hormones swirling around when you start having sex, um, you know, shit's going to get fuzzy. It's going to like, it's just hard to, 
So anyways, yeah, what are some questions that people can ask themselves, you know, especially it, like the, I love the taking the time by yourself because mm -hmm. I know it's so easy to to see them every single day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah, what are my needs in a relationship? And what needs is this partner able to meet and which ones aren't they? Um, which ones are their responsibility or shared responsibility and which ones aren't? Um, what was my relationship like with my caretaker? And do I want to recreate that in my partnership? Um, what behaviors would create a healthy sense of interdependence in this relationship? Are they present? If not, is there space and room to create that? And if not, am I willing to stay or do I need to go? Um, and these are questions you can ask yourself, but this is also a conversation you can have with the person, right? Mm -hmm. If you're noticing kind of some red or pink flags in the beginning, right? Um, are you able to create a safe space to effectively communicate this without blaming, with awareness, with clearly articulating your needs and, you know, kind of discussing that together in partnership versus passing the buck and or taking whole responsibility for the relationship. Um, you know, is this something that you guys can work on together? Um, but yeah, so those are some questions you can ask yourself. Those are questions that you can, you know, kind of ask your partner. Um, but I think effective communication is so under, um, what's the word I'm trying to say? Undervalued. <laughs> I'm already like, go. I'm already like, yeah, yes, 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 literally <laughs> clapping. clapping yeah. Like if, if we could just commune, if we had awareness, we actually all individually did the work to build awareness, um, and built the skill to effectively communicate. Um, I think humans are extremely resilient and I think love is a really powerful force, um, with those two things combined, if there's willingness and commitment to the relationship and, and to both people being the best versions of themselves and maybe together, like you can overcome a lot of things. Attachment style is like the least of your worries. If you can <laughs> come in with awareness and effective communication. Seriously. And that's why I feel like attachment style can like understanding your attachment style can just be one of the many beautiful building blocks you can add to a relationship set or to, to relationships. Sure. Many relationships, all of them. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that when it comes to, you know, healthy communication, I started communicating healthier, communi communicating with myself healthier and like communicating with my partners healthier when I understood where they were coming from. I mean, the last three relationships, because of the beauty of attachment theory, I, I did my best to not let protest behavior or not let mm -hmm. my emotions get the best of me and just be like if that's where you're at if you know if, if this is truly where you're at right now and you don't want to you know if, it, if our needs and our values aren't aligned then I'm totally okay with us going our separate ways we've had such a good I literally this is me quoting one of my trying to break up with one of my avoidant partners um from a while back is like I was just like it's oh I was so calm because I was just happy to have had that time with them and at the same time, I never want to force someone to do something they don't want to do because in the end, yeah, there's, there's, there's the beauty of doing the work together. But if that person's not doing the work and maybe we're meant to be in the future, clearly right now it's time for the, us to separate because they need to do their own work. And I think what maybe could, could have happened if I didn't do the work is I would have just been like, no, we have to do the work together. That's what a relationship's all about. You have to like you're, you know, you're bailing on me, you're leaving this, what we built. And I've done that in previous relationships, but with this particular person, I literally was like, you know, I like, it's totally okay. And I would much rather us go our separate ways and, and figure out, you know, I just want to see you feel good. I don't want to like, I, I hate to see you like this. It, like, if, you know, I'm obviously going to be bummed, but that's okay. Like mm -hmm. we spent so much time together. Um, so yeah. I, I just love to even see that. I mean, obviously, as long as there's no disrespect, you know, that's a whole other story, which I mean, I feel like we don't have enough time to bring that in. But, you know, in regards to just knowing that people grow apart or maybe people's needs aren't being met anymore or whatever, I think that we can have 
beautiful transitions from relationships instead of these awful, heartbreaking breakups. Yeah. You know, like this kind of brings me to an interesting point of creating a corrective experience. Right. So, you know, without going into too much detail, like you said, for the time, for the sake of time, like, as humans, we literally have the ability to train our brain with neuroplasticity, right? We can create new behaviors, new attachment styles, new thought processes, new emotional baselines, right? And so with the awareness, step one, and with effective communication with yourself and with other people, we have the possibility to create corrective experiences. Now, here's the interesting thing about corrective experiences. We can create them and or be part of them, right? So for example, in that, let's go back to the gym example. If you were aware and practicing effective communication in that moment, you could have noticed yourself get activated and you could have tested the relationship. And I'm using this in quotations because I know this word sounds very heavy and manipulative, but it's not. I'm just (laughs) using it for the sake of this example, right? You can test that relationship and create a Petri dish for a corrective experience and really see, does this person have the ability to work on this with me and can we heal or is this the evidence I need to know that maybe we need to increase our skill set and or dissolve this relationship? So you can test that relationship when you have the awareness. Hey, I'm getting activated by what he said. How can I take a few deep breaths to regulate myself and let me test this relationship? Hey, partner, I noticed myself get a little upset and anxious in this moment. And it's because of my own thought that you're getting a gym membership because you don't want to spend time with me. Um, I'm needing a little bit of reassurance in this moment. Um, can you just explain why you're wanting to join a gym membership or, um, is it because of me? Can you kind of just evaluate or debunk or, you know, challenge the thought so I don't go down the rabbit hole of something that's not even true. And if that person can respond to you in that moment with compassion, empathy, and connection, even though they might be avoidantly attached, um, what happens for you is you create a corrective experience where now it's like, oh, brain. Now we have a new reference point of last time you went down that rabbit hole. It wasn't even true. So come on back. He loves you. He's here, whatever. Right. Um, and what it does, it creates a corrective experience for the other person where now they feel comfortable kind of operating independently, expressing their needs, being vulnerable without you engaging in protest behaviors and impeding on their independence and coming in too hard, too quick. Right. And so if you can create, if you can continue creating those types of corrective experiences, right, where one of you guys is initiating and the other person is being attuned enough to kind of reciprocate, again, you can kind of mend not only your own attachment style, but create a really beautiful relationship between the two of you. Yeah. And then this is it. This is like my last question was like, how can, you know, avoidance and and mix and anxious um, styles become secure? And, And there we go, you know, I guess. And I just love that. I mean, the scary thing is, is that it's not always going to be, you know, it's going to be trial and error. Mm-hmm. And I think in the end, you know, I feel like it, it takes, it's that, is that awareness and then, you know, educating yourself, but then it's also just that willingness because in the end, we, I, like, we can't force people. If they don't have a willingness, we, to make, to help ourselves be secured, I guess, to correct that, um, that corrective, um, approach would be the ability to just let people go. Right. I mean, I think there's a, 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 I think there's a time and a place to put work in, but I think there's also boundaries and and conserving your energy. And I mean, in the end, what will be, will be, (laughs) right. I've been telling myself that lately. It's like, you know, I'm just like, I'm finally feeling like I'm ready for something more uh, after all this time of, of being intentionally alone and one beautiful thing that I, that, uh, well, one reason why I feel like that is that I just feel like I'm really able to let things go and know that, you know, I'm, I'm just not butthurt about things that I don't, that don't go my way because yeah. it's just not meant to be. And it's okay. Exactly. I mean, what we learned from the last podcast, I mean, like, it's totally okay to feel that way. And yeah. And without going off the deep end, I, I, I think, you know, it's important to also be clear on what is your intention relationally in general, right? I know for me, I've had to really, one, create clarity on what is a relationship because growing up 
as a Latin woman, I'm opening up a can of worms. We don't have time for it. So I'm just going to say this growing up as a Latin woman, like relationally, it was about getting a man so you can have kids and be a good woman. Right. And so I've had to do a lot of unlearning and relearning what relationships are for me. And so I've consciously chose how I view relationships and I view them as spiritual assignments. Like you, it is the ultimate safe container to do your deepest work. Um, And ideally you, ideally there's a lot of judgment with that word for me, ideally, I can attract a person that we do that work for each other together for an extended period of time. Um, But it could also mean multiple individuals with different assignments where I learn and grow from every single one and I just get better and more evolved and more aware and more skilled every single relationship. Um, And I am anxiously attached and it is still something that I notice. It doesn't go away. Um, But I have the awareness, I have the skill set, and I know what type of relationship I'm looking for. And so when I do engage, more times than not, I am able to respond in a secure way. But I still do have my subconscious tendencies that come up every once in a while, but I also communicate them to my partners and to myself and just get better every single time. Oh, love it. <laughs> now I accidentally clapped. I tried to do avoid it on the microphone. But... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for, I mean, just sharing your vulnerability there and, and sharing all your wisdom. I'm just so grateful. This has been, I just, I'm excited for people to hear this because you're so right. I mean, if we can understand this and build awareness and understand our intentions, I love that we ended it there. Really knowing what we want from human connection is whether that be casual or serious, whatever you want is, is the best way to keep people to, you know, to keep it healthy and keep people feeling safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what it's about. And thank you for hosting me again and creating this space and these really important conversations. I wish more people would talk about these things and listen to your podcast. And in any way that I can show up and chat with you, I love it. They're always so deep and meaningful. And in any way I can serve you or your audience, you know how to get a hold of me. Thank you so much. I will definitely add all the details in the show notes and in the intro, but just so much love for you, Jess. So much love.